Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is space, space stuff, because it's, it's in the, the news. news. But first, some updates from our last episode on cannabis. So uh, I had mentioned a website where you could go and find a whole bunch of reviews and things of different cannabis strains. And I was correct. It was indeed Leafly. So L-E-A-F-L-Y dot C-A. I think there's a dot com version, but I'm in Canada, so it always directs me to the dot C-A one. And on this, so you do have to be legal age to access the site. Um, one where you don't have to be legal age is Harvest Medicine, which is hmed.com. Uh, it has reviews of different cannabis strains, uh, focused more on medical cannabis strains, um, but there's no age gate on the info. It's only done by like one staff reviewer. Oh yeah. If there's something that prevents people from getting to stuff on the internet, it's age gates. That's yeah. You sure. can't lie in that little <laughs> box. <laughs> it asks your age. Not that they're tracking all your cookies now. <laughs> um, but yes, you know, so if you're not of legal age... Try HMED. Uh, and if you are, try Leafly. So it has a ton of information for these different strains, uh, usually connected to different companies like the, the producer company. So it will have a description and often an image of the bud, you know, so you can see how uh, trichomy it is and all of that. It'll have the THC and CBE potency, as well as a general calming versus energizing effect. They've got these like bars at the top of the page. And then it also has flavor and aroma, main terpenes present. We talked about those in our cannabis episode, so go listen to that if you want to know what terpenes are. And uh, if the strain's available from dispensaries nearby, which is cool, so you can actually connect direct to product. And the effects as reported by other users. So this is what I was talking about. You can actually go in there, and so each strain will have the top three feelings, side effects, and what it helps with. And you can actually search the site based on these things. You're like, I want a weed to make me feel happy. And it will bring up all the ones that users have reported feeling happy and all those things. So certain feelings could be relaxed, happy, sleepy, talkative, focused, giggly, hungry, etc. And then the side effects. Uh, the main ones that I saw were dry mouth. As we mentioned, a lot of people report that with uh, <laughs> cannabis consumption. Dry mouth, dry eyes, dizziness and anxiousness. As we talked, some people feel anxious <laughs> on the <laughs> marijuanas. Uh, and then help with helps with is uh, things like stress, anxiety, depression, pain or cramps, uh, and insomnia, ones I saw. And it also has a bunch of user reviews on there. So in addition to the kind of like quick and dirty information in terms of the, the effects, you also can go and read people being like, ah, oh, yes, I tried this and it for this reason and it did this. And mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of those too. So some strains only have a handful of reviews and others have like hundreds. So... It's a cool site to go on if you're debating trying something new and you don't want to talk to anyone in person. Mm. Very interesting. <laughs> uh, I had done a little bit of extra research after our last episode as well. Did I was you? I was a bit curious about uh, the roadside testings we talked about. Uh, um, yes. So I looked into kind of like some of the legal limits for Canada and like the systems that are used. Um, and so I I... I was correct that there is like, there's the standard roadside test, which is like that classic, like touch your finger to your nose, walk in a straight line, like yes. all these ones. And then uh, there's something that they can do if they have reasonable suspicion of impairment. So this is the same thing, like 
in Alberta now, they don't need reasonable suspicion to test you for alcohol. Mm -hmm. If they pull you over, they can give you a breathalyzer test at any point for any reason. Like, you don't even have to have made a traffic violation, technically. Because it's not like taking anything except for, like, breath. Yeah, exactly. I think they've they've argued that it's non-invasive and that the... It's um, the benefits to society outweigh the yeah the the cost to the to the individual right? right and even to the point where like a lot of the times they say like even refusing the breathalyzer is like that's grounds like because then you have to go to the station and get blood and stuff like that so the whole yeah. thing right <laughs> so anyway but with cannabis you have to they have to have suspicion of impairments with things like you know weaving in and out of a lane speeding you know going um, too o- slow exactly yeah I, like overbreaking those sorts of things so it's pretty nebulous generally when police have that kind of power it usually means that they can kind of do it whenever because <laughs> anything they sort of say will be taken as reasonable suspicion but they can do a saliva test um and then it has to be done within the three hours of driving so sort of say like you were driving home someone reported you and you pulled your car in like they could still test you as long as it's three hours from when like oh. you were reported as driving or things like that um and they have a roadside kit for the saliva testing i'm not 100 percent sure how it works i'm sure it's very similar to some types of like antigen testing which if you've had to take a covid test the rapid covid test is an antigen test where basically it works the same as to do an analogy on an analogy uh, it works the same as the way a pregnancy test works so you essentially have a strip of chroma, uh, chromatographic paper and you dip it into your sample and it will and then there's a special reagent on the paper that if you have so if you have the antibodies for covid or some of the particular markers for it it will bind to this indicator and it will cause it to like change color so that's what happens with pregnancy tests is that you you pee on the stick and in your pee there are metabolites that are ind- indicative of a pregnancy they bind to this special spot on the uh, test and that's what gives you like the plus sign right. or the negative sign yeah i was going to say it sounds maybe or in my head i think it would be more like a, a metabolite rather than an antigen based well the, on the antigen way your body breaks down antigen for covid and then like a metabolite test for pregnancy yeah and mm. so for cannabis i feel wouldn't it be more of a metabolite yes then it can yeah. Be, okay yeah so it's like your body's not fighting it <laughs> yeah sorry i said antigen test to compare it to the covid test gotcha. and then i ended up comparing the covid test to a pregnancy test yeah. anyway and i was going to be like but drug tests yeah. like steroid tests um, this is a drug. Mm-hmm. The Without other legs. one that they can do is that they can then also do blood testing, which generally has to be done at a precinct, but they can yeah. test your blood and that has to be done two hours post-driving. Uh, and then I I looked into it and impairment for cannabis. So minor impairment is between two and five nanograms per milliliter of blood. So nanograms of THC per milliliter of blood mm-hmm. for a minor offense. And then, but full um, uh, inebriation as it would be, it's greater than five nanograms per milliliter for a major offense. So, yeah. So there is some, there is some roadside testing. There is like some more like standardized stuff like that. I wasn't able to find a lot of data about like how accurate some of these tests were. A lot of the legal sites sort of, especially like legal defense sites sort of said that like one of the things that they'll most often like attack in a impairment defense is that the test is not always super accurate and all these sorts of things. It's not as well established in the literature as like the breathalyzer is, which we've been using for 50 years now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the way that your body metabolizes the cannabinoids is a different, uh, different thing as well. Exactly. And it's just not as well understood as the way that uh, we understand alcohol now. Again, because of, well, one, thousands of years of alcohol (laughs) consumption and then decades and decades of research into how alcohol is metabolized. And studying how anything is metabolized is incredibly complex. And we kind of talked about that, I think, in the Olympics one. Yeah, I was going to say, if you want to learn more, go listen to the Olympics book. We talked a lot about drug testing. Exactly. So, yeah. So those are some little updates from the cannabis episode. But uh, 
yeah, let's let's jump into this week's topic. Let's let's launch. Ooh, La- launch into space. Good, good pun. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that one. Um, yeah, so we uh, we talked a little bit about a couple a couple of weeks now. We've mentioned that like the James Webb Telescope has been getting ready to launch. It's this like pretty significant science uh, scientific undertaking. Uh, but there's also been a bunch of like smaller stories about space and rocketry, especially in yes. the news lately. So we sort of figured um, in the lead up here to the launch of the James Webb, we would roll all of these sort of late like these recent space stories into a single topic and we talk about kind of do kind of a quick hits on all three of them um it's three and one yeah so i don't know when this episode will ultimately come out but uh the james webb is slated to launch uh it's got a launch window of december 18th i believe they've picked the 22nd as the day Ah. that they want to try to launch but it's also going to take i was kind of hoping um i had some misassumptions about how the James Webb was supposed to operate. So I was sort of hoping that like, oh, it'll go up in space and then a week later we'll have some images and we'll be able to talk about it. But it turns out it's going to take 29 days for it, one, to reach its operating like location and then two, for it to actually like set itself up and be ready to go. So I was sort of like, I don't want to wait a whole nother month after it's launched to talk about it. So I figured we would get ahead of this one. Um, yeah, we'll do an update yeah. when we get some images and stuff. Exactly. And plus we're a podcast, so the images wouldn't really have helped us anyway. So We'll, we'll describe them in great detail. In great detail. We'll take like 10 minutes per yeah. image. Yeah. But uh, we, we'll save that one kind of for the end because uh, it's a much more positive topic than some of the other <laughs> stuff we have to talk about. Uh, so, we, so some of the stories that have been in the news. So obviously the James Webb. Uh, then you may have heard about this, uh, the NASA DART mission, which is like Armageddon, the movie, but, uh... Armageddon, the movie, the real story. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) We're going to train oil riggers to be astronauts because that's easier than training astronauts to drill oil on the moon stuff. If you've seen Armageddon or watched like the director's commentary. This is Davis's comment every single time Armageddon is mentioned. Exactly. Well, it's hilarious because there's a hilarious moment with like Ben Affleck where he's like talking about it in an interview and where he says like Michael Bay basically told him like, like, he cursed at him and was like, shut the F up about it or whatever, right? And like, yeah, it was just like, he's just like, stop worrying about it. Like, the logic is not important. And then that was basically Michael Bay's thesis for the rest of his career. But anyway, uh, so we'll talk about that, which is this really cool, like, planetary defense mission that yeah. NASA has uh, has set upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll start with um, some less than fun news. But yeah, def- definitely the lightest topic we'll talk about today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I figure you start heavy and you go light. And then everyone is left with warm, fuzzy feelings at the end rather than like, oh, no, the sky is falling. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good thing you make the show flows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so you may have heard uh, about some significant weapons testing that has been going on in the past uh, month, really. Yeah. I mean, this weapons testing has really been going on for a couple of decades now. Forever. For, well, I mean, <laughs> weapons testing of all kinds. But uh, in, in particular, the one that really made headlines was this Russian anti-satellite test. Yes. Uh, do you want to take this one or you want me to kind of walk us into this topic, as it were? Uh, I can give you the TLDR. Yeah, give me the TLDR. Uh, Let the people know. Russia had a missile to test that they wanted to test, Mm -hmm. and they decided to test it by targeting uh, an old defunct satellite of theirs and blowing it up Mm -hmm. and creating a debris cloud that caused the... Uh, the astronauts in the ISS, the International Space Station, to basically have to do a duck and cover 
Yeah. So when we did the Space Junk episode, space junk. Uh, which you can go back and listen to, and we talked a lot about how the International Space Station and like NASA has this protocol yeah. for what happens if space junk comes within or cloud of debris comes within a certain distance of the ISS. Because they can kind of alter its trajectory a little bit, like yeah. the ISS, they can move it up and down in its orbit like slightly, yeah. but it's generally easier to just kind of like basically what they do is they move the astronauts into the escape module usually a soyuz <laughs> module it might be the crew dragon one now but it's it's essentially the 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 vehicle that takes them up and it's just like their escape pod essentially yeah because as demonstrated so beautifully in the movie gravity yes. space junk flying around in space around in orbit around earth is really really dangerous even really really little stuff Mm -hmm, exactly. And so basically this test has received some pretty widespread condemnation from the international space community, especially because it basically created this massive cloud of space junk that has been flying around the space. And at the time, at the initial time, it was like every three or four hours, the astronauts were having to shelter in the Soyuz capsule in the event that there was a collision. Now, this is one of those this is one of those like hyper political topics so we'll try to be kind of neutral as we discuss it um and so Russia has sort of said that like you know they're sort of saying well the 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 effects of this of the space junk that was created is sort of being overstated or the danger that the astronauts in is it were in is kind of being overstated by NASA and some of the other space agencies yeah and the the actual effects some numbers for you mm -hmm. uh so the the satellite they destroyed is the cosmos 1408 satellite and it's been defunct since the 80s it's uh 3860 pounds which is large compared to other targets that have been targeted with this sort of missile in the past so it's created more debris than a smaller target would have been and that's one of the criticisms is that like why didn't you pick a smaller target that would make less debris um and the majority of the debris debris is predicted to come down in the next five years uh, but when they tested this, uh, it created a debris field in low Earth orbit of more than 1,500 pieces of trackable orbital debris that is also likely to generate hundreds of thousands of pieces of smaller orbital debris. So this is everyone's concern, is that you picked a large-ish target and then it blew up and uh, made these pieces that you can track. And anytime you can have this many pieces you can track, there's a ton of pieces you can't. And then as those pieces hit and they break down, you're going to end up with like even more thousands of tiny shards of metal flying through space oh metal plastics glass yep. all sorts of materials lots of sharp materials mm -hmm. uh and so the seven astronauts on the iss there are four americans two russians actually two russian cosmonauts and one european they uh <laughs> country of origin unknown <laughs> yeah they're just from the ESA. Not, they're not so. from the uk though obviously <laughs> yeah no they're, they're from the european space agency and yeah. that's uh that's what i remember and um, so they had to get into their spacecraft and shelter between 2 and 4 a.m. as the ISS passed near slash through the debris cloud, which uh, is happening every like 90 minutes. Yeah. There was something about they didn't have to do it for the first one, but they did for the second and the third pass. I don't, I didn't look into why, but that was, the NASA people said that. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> and so one of the reasons that this is particularly of interesting interest from like a rocketry perspective is like, the the history of rocketry is very closely tied to military capability. So the first rocket that was ever really developed. So the V2 is famous because it's one of the first American rockets. But the V2 was actually um, the, the successor to the V1 rocket, which was an early 
piece of rocket artillery that was developed by the Nazis. A lot of Nazi scientists became rocket scientists after the war in the U.S. They developed the V-2, which was one of the very earliest rockets uh, that was delivering payloads into space and stuff like that. And then obviously the Cold War, a lot of um, back and forth in terms of an arms race between the between Russia and the, or the Soviet Union at the time, yes. the U.S., um, to prove their missile launch capabilities to the point where there's a school of thought that likes to say like, that the moon landing was not so much about the scientific exploit of like landing on the moon, but rather it was this ultimate proof of concept that like our missile technology is so sophisticated that we can launch something from Earth and hit the moon. We got to the moon first. Yeah. And well, so we put people on the moon first, they, they yeah. didn't get there first. And, and like I would contend against that because like I would say that like one of the, the 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 launching the rocket to the moon, I mean, that's challenging in and of itself. But like it's really like you think about like the lander, getting people on the moon, getting people back off the moon, yeah. taking samples, stuff like that. Like that's really the crazy aspect yeah. of the moon landing. Like the technology to do all of those little things and prove that we could land on other planets. Um or celestial bodies, I think is a better way to say it, maybe. Um, that, that for me is like one of the major scientific takeaways, but there's always this school of thought that a large part of it was really just about showing how superior the U S rocket technology and the space program had become comparative to the Russians. Yeah. And I'm sure that the people who worked on the project were much more about the, the science of it mm -hmm. and like the excitement of, oh, can we do this thing? Uh, and what will it mean for us in the future to do more things like this? versus the people who were maybe funding it and their goals. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to the legacy of the Manhattan Project. We obviously associate the Manhattan Project primarily with the creation of the nuclear bomb. Yeah. It was a big part of why it was funded so heavily by the military, why it was so secretive, all these things. But it was really, at its core, the core project was about nuclear power and understanding how nuclear physics could be used to generate power, and ultimately then this weapons application of it, to the point where a lot of the scientists who were involved, obviously Oppenheimer's famous quote, but yeah. a lot of them sort of realized too late how the, sci the science that they were contributing to was only really going to be intentionally used in this one way in the short term. It was yeah. only being used to develop a weapon. It's a classic militarization of technology, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To the point where you think about it, right? Like, we'll maybe talk, cover the Manhattan Project one day, which is maybe a bit more of a history. I would love to. But... <laughs> more of a history thing than a science thing. But yes. if you're interested in it, let us know and we'll yeah. prioritize it. Um, but, you know, to the point where they developed, they had made this massive breakthrough. They had designed some of the earliest nuclear reactors, but really the first full-blown application of it was to create the bomb. So, yeah. uh, but anyway, so that's, it's sort of very similar, right? It's the militarization of this technology, like Sarah said, and you, you have this project that basically kind of has mixed use. You're, you're, and that's sort of similar to what's happening now with a lot of these like missile tests mm. is that it's a demonstration of like your missile capabilities, your ability to do certain things. Um, and obviously like anti-satellite warfare is going to become like more and more prominent yeah. as like the world continues to become more and more dependent. I mean, we're already super, super, super dependent on yeah. these systems. Like, you know, it's, you, you know, every time you open your phone and you use the Google maps app, you are connecting to a satellite. Yeah. So, you know, it has become completely proliferated into our lives and being able to disrupt the operations of these devices in space can have huge impacts against, you know, your state's enemies, as it were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pretty dramatic. Very much uh, so. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk to us about the specific types of missile used for this? 
Yeah, so it's called this, it, the system is called this like PL-19 Nudal missile system. And this particular test, what is so sort of significant about this particular test that they did is it's that it was a direct ascent weapon. So we typically call these anti-satellite weapons ASATs, anti-satellite. I saw that and I was, it took me longer than I thought to put it together because I was like, what? What is the other A and T? I had I had the exact same thing. I'm I glad it wasn't it, just me. I looked it up. I was like looking and looking and looking, and I was like, anti-satellite. What does it stand for? Why is no one just giving me like this straight up breakdown? Yeah. And then it, yeah, it took way longer than I would like to admit to realize that like, oh, sat sat is the short form for satellite. Yeah. 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 It's just it should be a like capital A S and then a lowercase A T. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be like a like you know yeah. like a B ed. You don't capitalize the D, mm. but they didn't do that. There's no. also no periods in it. It's just a yeah. set. So it took us a little while to figure it out. <laughs> but anyway, so it, so this is called a direct ascent ASAT. So basically it's like you launch it from the ground. It goes up into space and it hits its target. Previous ones had to be like launched from another flying object mm-hmm. or like we're even like you would launch something into space and then it would orbit to find its target. And like I'll go over a little bit of the history of it in a minute. Uh, well, I'll do it now. Um, do it right now. Do it right now. So <laughs> there are two major types of anti-satellite weaponry. There is the kinetic anti-satellite weaponry, the KEASAT, and then the non-kinetic. So obviously the test that Russia did is a kinetic test. They blew something up, right? Kinetic just meaning like physically hitting stuff? E- exactly. Okay. And these are the earlier, these are the earliest ASATs that were developed. Because you just have to crash a thing into another thing. Exactly. And it was something that we started to get very good at as soon as we started to do rocketry stuff. So the first ASAT development began in 1957 after the launch of Sputnik 1. Now, we'll talk a bit about Sputnik uh, as we keep going through this. It'll come up a number of times. Because Sputnik 1 was this huge historical moment because it was this mass, it was this moment where all of the fears that the U.S. was having in the 50s around you know, Russian and Soviet influence and the Soviet space race and like their growing um, space and military capability um, crystallized at the launch of Sputnik 1 because it was the first man-made satellite to be put into orbit. Uh, If you've ever seen the movie or read the book October Sky, which is about a real person, Homer Hickam, who was a, uh, was a, you know, a young American born in a coal mining town in Virginia that was dying. And like, basically this is one of those towns where like no one ever left. Like you basically uh. like became a coal miner and then you died of black lung in the town and your kids became coal miners. Uh, and he dreamt of becoming a NASA scientist. And he basically built a rocketry club with his, like some of his schoolmates and they like won the national science fair. And he did, he became, he was a NASA scientist for like 30 or 40 years, a NASA is, engineer. Is this the movie with Jake Gyllenhaal? It is. It's oh, an okay. excellent movie. <laughs> I've seen, absolutely I, only, I remember excellent. like one scene. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely phenomenal. The film, check it out. It, and it is really well done because it really shows like, it, it talks a lot about the rocketry, actually, like the science of the rocketry. It's beautifully done. The score is amazing. Um, but it's it's a really good movie. And it and it talks, it speaks a lot to the fears of of America in the 1950s as the space race was really ratcheting up and they were falling behind the Soviet Union. Right. That was the big thing about Sputnik was it was this watershed moment, this crystallization of the U.S. is officially behind our greatest rival. They have done something that we are not capable of doing at present 
So it's a big moment. Big moment. Yeah. So, but of course, <laughs> then the U.S. starts developing anti-satellite weapons because they're now afraid of the red menace in space. Uh, so the first one was called the Bold Orion, and it was an air-launched ballistic missile. So this is a missile that you would launch from another another aircraft. Uh, in space or just in... Like in like within... uh like in high altitude okay. so high altitude aircraft okay. um so that's like closer yes exactly and you have like less air for like air resistance and mm -hmm. and you have the yeah you have the momentum of the object that you're launching oh, from oh true yeah because it right? wouldn't be stationary <laughs> exactly and it's a little bit easier you now have two you can cut you have two moving objects and you're trying to hit you know from one moving object to another moving object rather than from a stationary object stationary ish being yeah. the earth um. <laughs> to something in orbit yeah uh, and and just the rocketry technology was not as developed at that point in time it was much harder for us to get launch vehicles off the ground so then of course it's classic arm race so then the russians in the 60s and 70s start developing a different type of kinetic asat called the co-orbital so what this is is you would launch a rocket into space it would have a payload in it that would detach right from the the launch vehicle and then it would orbit in space and what you would do is you would basically use it to catch up to or match the orbit of your target and then you would blow your payload up near your target oh. right because a concussive blast near a satellite all this force in space nothing to dissipate it is enough to disrupt a satellite's operation and right? potentially just shoot it into space you shoot it into space, destroy it, shoot it out of orbit, knock it out. If you hit a geosynchronous uh, satellite with um, a kinetic blast like that and you knocked it out of its geosynchronous orbit, it's completely useless now. Right. Because it needs to be in a very specific yeah. orientation to the Earth and like in positioning around. This is how global positioning systems work. Yeah. If they're off by even like a fraction of a second in terms of their calculations of where they are relative to the Earth's motion, your GPS is telling you you're in the Pacific Ocean when you're driving through the Rockies. Like it's this huge difference. Yeah. Because time works different out there. Yes, exactly. I think <laughs> we covered that is, a little bit. We did, yeah, because yeah, time is connected to gravity. And ever since I heard that, I can't get my mind around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so technically <laughs> taller people experience time differently <laughs> than shorter people. I mean, it's like super, super minuscule yeah. to the quantum level, but that's like the running joke. Um, it's like taller people die faster because time's moving faster for them. It's like greater time dilation. Um, so you can add that. If you're, if you're running, if you're tired of always saying, well, how the, how's the weather up there? It's like, how's the time dilation you're experiencing? And then you Amazing. get a bunch of quizzical looks and people think you're weird but but you'll you'll, you'll know you're funny yeah you'll laugh and <laughs> yeah. we'll laugh with you yeah exactly we'll be here for you we'll be here to back you up um so so that was so that was this sort of you know this co-orbital style that they developed and then the u.s um in the 1980s so up to this point, everything is explosives. You're essentially launching like a warhead, some sort of bomb into space to blow up this thing. So then in the 80s, the U.S. develops the hit to kill um, ASM-135. That's so dramatic of a name. Okay, well, you have to understand that like, this is Reagan era U.S. 80s where he literally wanted to create like a Death Star. There was a there was a project Death Star in the U.S. military, and the goal was to create a space laser that could destroy ground targets from space. Obviously, it was never realized, but like you know, you make all these jokes about like Trump's Space Force today, mm -hmm. but like that the the precedence for the Space Force, the arm, the new arm of the military, which does exist now. Um, comes from this legacy of the 80s where there was a program in the U.S. military literally called Space Wars or Star Wars. I think it was Star Wars or Space Wars. I can't quite remember. Oh, man. But I, I just like, every, I look around nowadays and there's a lot of people who are like, you can't write satire anymore because satire is real life. 
And I, I guess that was true then too. It's, and it's kind of one of those things. It's, like, it's kind of always been true, right? Yeah. So, uh, so this one was a kinetic payload. So basically it is in the same way that a, like a bullet is a kinetic payload because the explosive action that propels the bullet happens in the gun and the part that's traveling is not an explosive right? It's a slug. It's a piece of metal moving at such rapid speeds that it causes extreme damage. And this is the same principle where you're launching essentially like a big metal slug into space and you're trying to hit the object. And again, you hit anything in space with any amount of force, you're going to disrupt its operations yeah. uh, and potentially even destroy it. So it's sort of the opposite of like a kinetic strike, which we definitely talked about, which is where you would launch a metal slug from space and the force of gravity would basically cause it to impact the earth with so much force it'd be like an asteroid hitting. Oh, right. Like yeah. if, as the, the satellite warfare, basically. Exactly. Kind of yeah. the inverse of satellite warfare where you're using satellites to commit warfare versus like anti-satellite warfare yeah. where you're trying to disrupt satellites. So, uh, and the, the reason a kinetic payload is preferred is because it's more stable. If you launch a bomb into space on top of a bomb, essentially, because that's what a rocket is, it's a controlled <laughs> explosion, the chances of it blowing up on the launch pad, blowing up before it reaches your target, like, are way higher. It's just way less stable. So, uh, okay, so, wait, so kinetic is the, is just the bullet one. And then the non-kinetic is the explosion or the explosion is non, is the kinetic. So non-kinetic in the terms of like kinetic V non-kinetic ASATs yeah. is they, the metal slug and the explosive would be kinetic okay, yes, because it's okay. the kinetic force of hitting something gotcha. with something else. Yeah. Okay. That's, non, what, that's what my brain was telling me. Yeah. And I was like, have we talked about non-kinetic? Yeah. Non-kinetic, um, you know, just to talk about it now, because the non-kinetic is not as, um, it's no, there's not as much discussion about it, but um, it, it, these are actually the ones that are more commonly used. I was reading an article that was saying that like, there's basically actually like constant non-kinetic attacks against certain satellite infrastructure uh, in the same way that there's basically constant cyber attacks going on. Right. <laughs> Both from states and individual actor actors and things like that. Like all these people are basically constantly launching these types. You're basically you're testing the fences. Yeah. Right. You're trying to see where the weak points are. Checking for soft spots. Exactly. Um, so a lot of the uh, non kinetic things are things like uh, lasers that are used from Earth to blind sat satellites and like disrupt their sensors. Uh, traditional communications jamming where you would jam the radio frequencies by putting out what's the word just like destructive frequencies for whatever frequency they're on to disrupt their ability to spread uh to send signals and uh things like uh there's one more that i cannot recall at this moment anyway so so those are the non-kinetic ones so things again things that are non-physical that are doing to disrupt like the electronic signal of how something works right. so like if, if i was had a walkie-talkie yeah then if I wanted to do a non-kinetic, I could just like hold the button down so no one else could use the channel. Exactly. Like okay. that's basically what radar jam or like jamming is. Like, yes. like radio frequency jamming is you are either occupying the frequency that they want to use with a bunch of white noise or you're creating like signals that are anti like um, that the are opposite the opposite. They're right? destructive to the signals that are actually being sent. Right. Exactly. And interestingly, right, like obviously like the Russian test is creating all this kind of term, like this turmoil in terms of international relations right now. Yeah. But in 1985, Reagan demonstrated this um, ASM-135, this hit to kill, and he destroyed us. They destroyed a satellite, a defunct satellite. So wow. this is Precedent. where, exactly. And this is where a lot of like these stories come out today, 
obviously like we are in the kind of quote unquote Western world. So we typically are always going to receive a very biased perspective on these stories and people's memories are very short. So we, and you know, when was the last time you heard of a satellite being blown out of space before this one? I hadn't. Exactly. We weren't alive in the eighties and chances are, even if we were, we wouldn't have remembered that that had happened in the eighties. Yeah. Right. It's just not, it's just not the way our brains work and it's not the way the 24 hour news cycle works. So and the mm, news cycle is different than anyway, right? Like, Exactly. And so it gets painted in this completely different picture, right? Um, it, 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 from certain media sources. But it's important to remember that, like, that's why some of these other, these fledgling space agencies get so frustrated when they're called out for stuff like this. Like the same thing with, with China's test that we talked about a while back with the space junk and stuff mm -hmm. like that, where they'd had the uncontrolled reentry of yes. their rocket is that they're sort of saying, it's like, well, you did all of these same things when you were developing your space program. So you're being quite hypocritical to come to us and say that we can't do those same things to develop the same capabilities that you have, because maybe you're not sharing the same information or maybe Probably they don't want sharing. to share some of the same information. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's where a lot of this comes from. So it's really important to remember from a historical context that like, you know, it, there there's precedence, like you yeah. said. It's not, this is not, it's, what, three weeks ago, was not the first time a satellite had been blown up in space. It's just a little bit different now, again, because of the way the news cycle works, and because space is way more crowded now than yeah. it used to be. Also, Russia is not a fledgling space program. Program. No. program. <laughs> no. Very true. That's a good point as well. Um, but again, and this, these kinetic ASATs or non-kinetic ASATs, this development is going on all the time. Yeah. So like in 2007, China tested a, a kinetic uh, ASAT against a weather satellite that was in low Earth orbit. Uh, and most of that debris is still in orbit, but it's quite high altitude comparatively to like other operations and things like that. And other ones that have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. And then India also did, uh, which is a fledgling space program yes. that has made amazing strides in 20 years. Yeah. They came very, very close to landing a rover on the moon. They did land it. It just... It didn't quite deploy and things like that. They lost contact with it. It got on the moon. Yeah, it hit the moon, <laughs> uh, but which is, which is like a huge undertaking, yeah. right? Like, and, you know, comparative to how long it took the U.S. to be able to send even just people orbiting around the moon and coming back, like, you know, a fraction of the amount of time and yeah. energy and manpower and money. Um, but they also tested a, um, they launched a kinetic ASAT in 2019. It's called Mission Shakti. I don't think they were targeting something. I think it was just to prove the capability of the rocket to do this task. Um, yeah. So that's a little bit of like kind of the, the, the history of these anti-satellite weaponries. Um, and obviously, again, it's sort of one of those things that's always going to be big news when yeah. they happen. So. Yeah. And what we're, what you mentioned with the, uh, the space being a lot more crowded now mm -hmm. is like, that's really true. And uh, I found a good quote about like why people are so upset about this Russian test right now and, and the impact it could have because uh, U.S. officials emphasized the long-term dangers and potential global economic fallout from the Russian test, which has created hazards for satellites that provide people around the world with phone and broadband service, weather forecasting, GPS systems which underpin aspects of the financial system, including bank machines, as well as in-flight entertainment and satellite radio and television. So... A lot of things that can be Im impacted by a bunch of space junk floating around and is extra problematic because uh, there is a, a prediction that in the near future, one in every 15 specks of light in the sky could be satellites, mm -hmm. which is wild because of like, there's a lot of stars, man. So mm -hmm. if there's like one in every 15, 
that's that's a problem. So right now there are 4,000 operational satellites. Nearly half are from Starlink, which we definitely talked about in our space junk <laughs> space link in our space junk episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Starlink is like Elon Musk's and like Tesla, uh, their like um, satellite internet. Yeah, and people, a lot of people who live in rural areas are adopting this because it works mm-hmm. a lot better because in, internet infrastructure has not reached very far into the country, which is really uh, difficult in today's day and age because access to internet is becoming much more of a human right than, uh, like, in order to function in society. Yep. Uh, yeah, and uh, because of the geometry of sunlight and the orbits that have been chosen for a lot of the satellites that are, uh, like, predicted or, or requested to go up into the air... Uh, 50 degrees north and south will be most severely affected. Now, 50, 50 degrees south, it's like the tip of South America. You kind of hit like Argentina and Chile, uh, but like just the very tip. But 50 degrees north has a ton of cities on it. Vancouver is on 50 degrees. Calgary, Berlin in Germany, London in England, Prague in the Czech Republic, and a whole bunch of others. So uh, this means that at uh, it's like an hour before... And after sun, like an hour before sunrise and an hour after sunset at the equinoxes, well, you'll be able to see satellites mm-hmm. like for a lot of that time, uh, which is, you know, a little less pleasant to look out at. Um, but there is, uh, if you want to look more into this on your own time, uh, there's an open source computer model to predict satellite brightness uh, done by a bunch of like uh, astronomers and scientists and things like this uh, to figure out uh, how badly the night sky is going to be affected by sunlight reflected from planned satellite mega constellations. Uh, and the model uses 65,000 satellites on the orbits filed by four mega constellation companies. So SpaceX is Starlink, uh, Amazon Kuiper. Yeah, Kuiper. Kuiper. Yeah. Kind of like the Kuiper belt. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking that, but it's Kuiper spelled K-U-I-P-E-R. Yeah, it's just named that for a guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then OneWeb, which is the United Kingdom company, and Starnet. Uh, and these simulations, you can check this open source, is uh, they show that from everywhere in the world, in every in every season, there will be dozens to hundreds of satellites visible for at least an hour before sunrise and after sunset. And if you want to check this out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a, a <laughs> URL. It's not very long, though. Uh, so it's github, G-I-T-H-U-B, dot com slash Hanorain. H-A-N-N-O-R-E-I-N forward slash mega constellations. That's it. Not too long. But you can see the model. You can see they have video prediction of this. Uh, and it's... Maybe maybe upsetting. we'll put the link in the description so that people don't have to get their pen and paper out and write all those letters down. Yes, we'll do both. <laughs> so you can do it the easy way yeah. or do it the audio yeah. way. I'm sure you could Google it too and it would like mega constellation simulation and it would come up. But, yeah. yeah, you could do that. The internet is a wonderful tool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then another potential issue with all of these satellites up there, in addition to general space junk, is that uh, Starlink plans to replace each of the 42,000 satellites, because 42,000 of the 65,000 65, satellite predicted ones, <laughs> the words I'm trying to say, uh, are Starlink uh, plans. So they've they've plans to replace each of the 42,000 satellites after five years of operation, which will require deorbiting an average of 25 satellites per day, which is about six tons of material. And the mass of these satellites won't go away. It'll be deposited in the upper atmosphere. So more stuff floating around. And one reason this is so problematic, beyond just being space junk, 
is that uh, in the upper atmosphere, the aluminum in the satellites could vaporize, creating alumina particles, and those can damage the ozone layer. So like there was a big problem with the ozone layer in the 80s because of chlorofluorocarbons and hydrochlorofluorocarbons, CFCs and HCFCs, uh, we could end up with another ozone problem because of all of the aluminum in the satellites starting to break down in the upper atmosphere. Uh, but this area hasn't, or the effect of this hasn't been studied too much because low Earth orbit is a very unregulated space. You know, there's there's no rules about light pollution, atmospheric pollution from launches or from re-entry or collisions between satellites. And one way, <laughs> once again with space, that we can help not have some of this stuff happen is by cooperating because if these companies would cooperate with each other, they could use the same satellites instead of all needing their own satellites. And then there'd be fewer extra points of light in the night sky. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's something that with the uh, the increasing privatization of space has definitely kind of gone by the wayside. Uh, even like uh, just briefly, like NASA's moon mission has now kind of been delayed a year because uh, Jeff Bezos' <laughs> Blue Origin launched a lawsuit against NASA for the... Um, because they had done a requisition for the new lunar lander. SpaceX had won the contract. Blue Origin... Uh, it was like, you were going to pick more than one. Yeah, and got upset about it. <laughs> and they tried to sue NASA. And apparently Blue Origin has like lost a bunch of their engineers because of it. Because like oh. space engineers typically don't really like it when you mess with NASA. Yeah. So they apparently a bunch of them have left the company. Uh, but uh, but uh, of course, it did have this impact. And people are quite frustrated with it because it's so hard to create the um, the necessary buy-in for these types of projects. That yeah. it really, any type of delay really damages public perception. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but with the whole... Uh, commercialization, NASA has very recently uh, chosen three companies to design concepts for a new like ISS, essentially. And uh, Blue Origin is one of the companies chosen because there's not that many companies big enough to support commercial spaceflight. Yeah. (laughs) And so the other aspect of this same sort of story is these the hypersonic missile tests that have been going on. Uh, And at first I was I had misattributed the two stories together. I thought that the Russian rocket that they used to blow up the satellite was a hypersonic missile, but it turns out that they've done a hypersonic missile test at around the same time. Uh. So you've probably heard of like ICBMs, which are intercontinental ballistic missiles. So this is like in, in um, you know, spy movies when they're launching the nukes and all the nukes are flying around the map on the earth. Those are ICBMs. Because they can go between continents, Ex- intercontinental. Exactly. So they have this massive range. They were a huge, like a huge weapons development. Uh, and basically the way that they work is that you launch a rocket up into space and then you deploy the payload from your rocket and you fire it back down at the earth in a big what's called a parabolic curve uh and this is so there are missile defense systems around the world that are designed to intercept these types of missiles uh so you ever watch the old you've ever seen that really old game from the 80s missile command um no but i can imagine it yeah so missile (laughs) command is basically kind of like it was like the precursor to almost like space invaders where the missiles would be dropping down to the earth and then you would be like an operator on earth and like it was all like you know like asteroids level graphics (laughs) and you would like basically you would shoot spots in this in the sky and like your bomb would detonate and it would destroy these missiles and you would try to prevent them from hitting the ground which is essentially how missile defense systems actually work they try to identify these objects as they go up into space they read their trajectories and then they launch a counter a piece of you know a counter missile essentially to blow that missile out of the air before it becomes a danger yes 
The reason that hypersonic missiles have been getting so much coverage lately is that it's again it's one of the, it's one of these Sputnik moments where a few countries that the that the U.S. has some frosty relationships with have demonstrated their capabilities and have sort of shown that they're beyond where the U.S. is in terms of these types of technologies. And the reason a hypersonic missile is of so much concern is hypersonic means so supersonic is anything that travels faster than the speed of sound. Uh, we typically, sometimes they call them the mocks. So if you think ah. of a plane going Mach 1, it is going over one times the speed of sound, okay. right? Uh, and they're kind of concrete barriers. So, um, you know, you could be between Mach 1 and Mach 2, but you would just say the plane is going Mach 1, okay. right? Um, so Mach 2, two times the speed of light, so on and so forth. Hypersonic is five times the speed of, sorry, I said speed of light, and that is not true. That's not true. <laughs> yeah. Nothing can go faster than the speed of light. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, time, certain times, so every mock is times the speed of sound. Yes. A hypersonic missile is, or hypersonic anything, is something that will travel greater than five times the speed of sound. So Mach wow. 5 and above. So they're much faster. And then partly because of this speed and the way that these types of missiles are designed, they don't, they're not using a hyperbolic uh, curve. Parabolic. So, parabolic. Hyperbolic is also a math thing, it's slightly different. Parabolic is like a big curve. It's yeah. a big arc. <laughs> An overstating <laughs> arc. Um, so parabolic curve, you can't with and with these types of intercontinental ballistic missiles, the traditional ones, you cannot redirect your payload once you've sort of launched it. Yeah. Right? It's it's a single rocket stage and then like a single missile stage. So it mm -hmm. Which makes it easier to shoot out of the sky because if you know it's like if you know the path it's been on, you know the path it's going to take. Exactly. And but the difference with the hypersonic is that it doesn't have to do this parabolic curve and it can also be controlled throughout its entire flight. So they pose so basically they outclass any of the current like missile defense systems that exist. It's like a super scary drone. Yeah, exactly. Like very, very fast and very difficult to intercept because it can maneuver and change directions. Uh so Basically, the U.S., Russia, and China are all rushing to develop these types of weapons. And there was there have been two significant tests in the last month, one Russian system and one Chinese system, that have both basically proven to a certain extent that these that their hypersonic capabilities are very close. So they're both tests still slightly missed their intended target, their practice targets, but they proved that. So the Chinese one, for example, and which it, it's been quite interesting in the news because China is kind of denying that it's a hypersonic missile, but it was what they did was they launched a rocket from that rocket. They released what's called a hypersonic glide vehicle. So again, it's like a plane or a drone that's traveling at hypersonic speeds. And then that hypersonic hypersonic glide vehicle launched some sort of projectile wow. that was tracked by satellites as doing a complete orbit before it kind of crashed down i think in the south china sea and china has basically so basically a bunch of the international community went hey you just did a weapons test that's yeah. not cool and china sort of went no it wasn't a weapon it's a space vehicle and we were testing the reusability of our space vehicles mm -hmm. so that's so that's how they've justified it. we did one orbit and came back to earth so that we could prove that we could collect and refuel it whatever it might be um, but obviously, again, this has created this same sort of like Sputnik Red Scare type moment where the U.S. is being outpaced in this realm of technology and it's created these big ripples in terms of like international relations and things like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, China and Russia don't have the uh, best track record in when it comes to international honesty. Well, so, neither does the U.S. And yeah, neither does the U.S. All three of all true. three of those are extremely guilty of, <laughs> yeah, of doing true. these types of weapons tests in secret um, or doing these types of tests specifically to demonstrate to their 
quote-unquote enemies or their rivals, I think is a better word for it, that they have capabilities that their rivals don't have. It's, you know, basically since the 19, basically since the bomb was dropped, mm -hmm. the threat of nuclear weaponry has been used primarily as a deterrent. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same thing with these intercontinental ballistic missiles and hypersonic missiles. So to this point, hypersonic missiles cannot be outfitted with nuclear-tipped warheads. Um, I mean, that technology is probably not far off, but... At present, it can only be uh, they can only be outfitted with like traditional payloads, so okay. explosives, really. Um, but again, the point in today's world of demonstrating your capability of doing something like this is not to say, like, you know, it's it's not because you really intend to use those weapons necessarily, but it's because you want to create the fear that if you hit us, we have this capability to go beyond whatever you can do, and yeah. we'll hit you back. And with these ones, like we're saying, the uh, the the air, the the ground systems can't, they can't target and, and shoot them out of the air, right? Because they're they're too fast, they're they're too mobile. Mm -hmm. So this is a, uh, it, this would be a strong deterrent. Exactly, and it creates leverage, right? Because yes. you can sort of say, well, we don't want you to do these things, and we, it's like the sword of Damocles, right? It's hanging over your head, and it's the capability that you don't, you don't, you can't defend against, and that you can't match, right? Uh, and again, this, these are there were tons of things that proliferated like this in the Cold War. Um, particularly, an interesting one that you might want to look up if you're interested is called the Dead Hand in Russia. It was uh, a facility, basically like deep in, like it was like literally underground in Russia, where it was basically about Russia's first strike capability, so that it or in the Soviet Union to be more accurate. And the idea was that if there was a nuclear launch against Russia or the Soviet Union that destroyed the entire Soviet chain of command in a single strike, that this unit would be able to automatically launch all of Russia's nukes, all of the Soviet Union's nukes at the same time in a retaliatory strike. It's really interesting. Look it up. Uh, we won't go into it too much here, but Goodness. there's like a lot of, and it's, you know, there's some conversation that it's like, it's still technically operational because of the way it was designed and all this stuff, but it's very interesting. Dang. Yeah. So I know we kind of like flew through that, but oh, we flew through it. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to spend too long on kind of missile testing because it always makes me feel kind of icky. Yeah. But it's okay. We took it. We took a nice detour to satellites again. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So let's talk about a different type of missile test yes. that maybe is a little bit more, um, I don't think altruistic is the right word yeah. for it. Well, it's, it's something that could be good for all of us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's this planetary defense test that NASA has launched just this past month called the DART mission, the double asteroid redirection test. So let the Armageddon references begin. <laughs> I actually looked up. I was like, what other movies have used like Deep Impact? <laughs> yeah. And there were a number That's... of them. I'd seen none of them except Armageddon. I was like, I shouldn't mention these. So every so often, like you'll notice this in Hollywood, there'll be like two movies that come out very near each other that basically have like the same concept or plot. Interstellar and Gravity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, this is what, so like Deep Impact is like the lesser known Armageddon. It is not as good a movie as Armageddon <laughs> is. Um, it doesn't have a... Uh... Oh, Liv Tyler? No, it does have a crackers? it does have Elijah Wood in it though. What? <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah, All right. it's got Elijah Wood in I'm it. I'm gonna go look it up. And it's and it, it, there's this ridiculous scene where they're running at the end where they're running up a mountain escaping like a tidal wave caused by one of like the launches of this asteroid. Uh, it's also about John Favreau in it. Um, that he's like the guy who he's the director who did Iron Man. He was like happy in all the Marvel movies. He's like a big director. Oh, he was happy in. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, so I digress. But yeah, there's a ton <laughs> of movies that have covered this basically this exact same concept. Yes. 
There's a big rock in space, and it's coming towards us, Mm -hmm. and we got to do something about it. Yeah. There was a whole TV show, like, five years ago called Salvation, um, and it was basically about, like, an Elon Musk type who was, like, (laughs) trying to save the world from this, like, impending disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And then it ended on, like, the weirdest cliffhanger because the show got canceled, and it was revealed that the asteroid was, like, not really an asteroid. It was some sort of, like, space object, like, some sort of UFO. Uh, It was very weird. We'll never know. We'll never know what they intended because it's canceled. Oh, no. It was pretty good. It was like an enjoyable, like, kind of cable TV show. I actually just watched Venom for the first time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Mm -hmm. they get the Venom symbiote from an asteroid. Yeah. It's not going to crash into Earth. They were in space and they found it. But... Uh, that would be very bad if a if a, an asteroid full of those guys came down <laughs> and landed on the planet and survived. Yep. They'd have to survive the landing. That would be a different thing. Uh, but yeah, and it also has an Elon Musk type who mm-hmm. uh, gets carried away and is the reason that they're brought to Earth. But yeah, yep. I just thought it was a, a fun connection. Also a very fun movie. Some big plot holes, this. but uh, they do Venom very well as a character. So if you haven't watched it and you want a fun action movie that has uh, some really cool like monster movie elements, mm. go watch Venom. Uh, my review of Venom is not as glowing as Sarah's, so I'll, I, I'll, but I'll keep that to myself. <laughs> Venom, it's The movie itself leaves things to be desired, but the way they do Venom... Yeah, I love yeah. Venom for the like the monster and the symbiote thing. Yeah. We're getting distracted though. Yeah. Anyway. So destroying dark. asteroids. <laughs> so okay. In the movie Armageddon, they <laughs> try to blow up an asteroid with a nuke. And that's sort of like the main plot of the movie. And they gotta send a human out there to do it. Yeah. And so obviously, like these sorts of things, like even before movies like Armageddon, but there's always been this, like, ever since we kind of started to understand that a dinosaur a, that a dinosaur killed all the dinosaurs. That an asteroid <laughs> killed all the dinosaurs. Fell from the, sky. <laughs> guy, the biggest dinosaur ever. Um, ever since we kind of understood that an asteroid had caused a mass extinction event, there's been this kind of fear of a planet-killing asteroid yes. hitting the Earth. And In all of these movies, when this happens, right, it's like, oh, no, we've got 30 days to save the Earth, and, like, we we can't do any, like, how do we, we can't alter the trajectory of the asteroid, it's too big, and all this stuff. So there's always, they always, almost always resort to blowing it up. Yes. Yeah. Because asteroids are huge, a lot Mm -hmm. of them. Yeah. Uh, But obviously, reality is not quite the same as science fiction, and basically, like, our ability to detect these objects is greater than these, like, movies would suggest, like, oh, no, it's weeks from impacting the Earth, and we're only just seeing it. We never saw it because it's, it's been hidden by the sun the whole time. Yeah. And I mean, even still, we've only really identified about 40% of potentially like catastrophic sized asteroids that are in orbit in the solar system that could potentially like have a near Earth pass. Mm-hmm. Now, a near Earth pass is within like several million miles of the Earth's oh. orbit or something like that. So it's still like quite a distance, mm-hmm. but it they become a higher risk at this point. Right. But our detection abilities are, are quite a bit further along. And, but obviously there is an interest in understanding like what can we do should we tomorrow find an asteroid that is potentially going to hit Earth or at least going to make a, a pass a little too close for comfort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, def- we definitely don't want a big rock from space hitting the Earth. Mm-hmm. It causes a bunch of problems. Yeah. So the best way or the way that they're testing right now that, um, you know, rather than launching nukes into space to blow up asteroids is and because again like we don't really understand a lot about the composition of asteroids and then every asteroid has this potentially completely different composition right metallic asteroids going to behave very differently from a rocky asteroid all these things so explosives traditional payload explosives won't work because you have to design an explosive to destroy the thing that you are trying to get the specific material exactly so it's not always going to work 
But the big thing that we can really have an influence on in space, like we were talking about with the satellites and co-orbital defenses where you're yeah. blowing something up near something or impacting something to knock it out of its operational yeah. range or destroy it, is that we can, is kinetics in space and the way momentum works and the way that all of these celestial bodies are moving together in three-dimensional space affecting one another is really the best way that we have at this stage with our current understanding to affect the trajectory of an asteroid. Thinking more butterfly effect rather than Armageddon. Like, it, yes. Yeah, instead mm -hmm. of trying to blow it up, just get, reach it a little uh, a little farther away and just give it a little bump. Exactly, and, and butterfly effect is a really good analogy for it, right? Because you're making a small change so far away from Earth in terms of like this asteroid's trajectory that that small change that tiny change to its speed or its trajectory is going to result in a massive change to its ultimate destination in terms of how close it passes to the earth so what they're doing is they have launched a rocket they launched this rocket on the falcon 9 uh to up and it's called the dart and it's they've launched it to hit this asteroid that they've identified it's not on a near-earth collision course no so there's a, a big asteroid called, oh gosh, I didn't practice these. Dimorphos. No, this one. Oh, Didymos. Didymos. So there's a big asteroid called Some Didymos. Some Greek word. And it's being orbited by a smaller asteroid called a Moonlit, which yes. is super cute. Uh, and that's Dimorphos. And they were like, let's see if we can bump Dimorphos off its happy little orbit around this bigger asteroid. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's called the double asteroid redirection test. Because if they were to just identify some random asteroid and say, let's hit this asteroid and see how its orbit around the sun is affected. It would take a lot longer and it would be a lot more complicated to measure the, the effect of what they had done. Very true. So you think about it like this is, this is an experiment in the same way that you would do an experiment in the lab and you would say, okay, I need to control as many of the variables as possible. And then I'm going to only alter one variable at a time. I'm going to measure all the little effects of, of altering that variable. So they've taken essentially what is like a closed system, a more closed system with this asteroid that has a moonlit orbiting it that they can basically map out all of the physics and then they're going to say well let's hit this asteroid the moonlit yes see how its trajectory changes and because it's orbiting this its mother asteroid much faster than it the whole unit is orbiting the sun we can see right away the effect that we've created so it's this kind of proof of concept yeah. if we alter dimorphos which is the moonlit uh, if we alter its orbit around Didymos, then we have good reason to believe that we could feasibly deflect an asteroid with enough force to change its orbit and alter its trajectory towards Earth. Yes. And uh, the way that they did this, the way that the dart worked, is uh, it wasn't a big, like, it's not a big explosion. It's literally like flying this little dart into like the face of the moonlit. Like, mm. like it just like crashes into it. Uh, there's a, NASA's a funny video on it, or uh, NASA has a video on it, which is quite well done. And one of the scientists was like, no, I never expected I would be uh, crashing a, a, a spacecraft worth a couple hundred million dollars just into a, a rock in space. But here we are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's flying out there over six kilometers per second mm -hmm. or will fly, flew. Has this happened? When it makes impact, it yes. will be going roughly six kilometers yes. per second. Uh, and so it's, you can think of it like a central body, like a big cube. And then it'll have these two big solar arrays that come out and they're like 20, 28 feet in length. And they said the whole thing's about the size of a school bus. So they're just like shooting it into space. The solar arrays will open and then it will uh, just keep going and crash into 
this asteroid. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things, too, about this particular test is it's, you know, NASA, obviously, like, it takes a lot of money to send something into space. Yeah. This is a pretty long-term mission. And so I think it's an, I think it's 2022 that the impact will happen. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, so I think it's, like, six months away. It's not crazy, wow. crazy long. Um, but the... Uh, you know, NASA, obviously, you want to stack a number of experiments yeah. together, essentially, <laughs> yeah. like different proofs of concept. So one of the interesting things about this particular spacecraft is um, just to, to describe some of the other elements of it first is that it really only has one instrument. Yeah. It's this camera yeah. that will essentially be used to allow the spacecraft to make autonomous decisions. Because, again, it's so many millions of miles away. Signals take too long to go back and forth. So those tiny adjustments it's going to need to make to actually impact the asteroid aren't going to be possible from a human on Earth. They have to be done by a computer in real time in space. Mm -hmm. So the only instrument it has is this camera. It's going to take some pictures of the asteroids, and then it's going to use the camera to smash it, to direct itself to smashing into the asteroid. But what the what is interesting about this rocket that or the vehicle that is taking the unit all the way out to the asteroid is it's a new engine that they're using on this rocket. So you think about, um, you know, the moon landing mission, you've got this massive rocket, the biggest rocket ever built the Saturn V, and you use all of that momentum to get this thing out of Earth's orbit escape gravity and with multiple stages propel a small capsule all the way to the moon. And then you kind of, and then, you know, remember like they had a lander that went down to the moon and then back up, but you had the orbital unit that just stayed in space the whole time because you can't lose that momentum, right? You right. have no way to get it back. Right. So you have to use, you have to conserve your momentum in orbit around the moon and then you launch yourself out of the moon's orbit and you come back to earth. So you're basically still using all that force that was generated from that initial rocket. But law, they've always talked about all these different ways of doing that. And it's really difficult. If you're spending sending a spaceship really far and you still want to have control over its movements, you can't use traditional fuels. Yes, too heavy and too volatile. And it would never last long enough, yeah. right? Exactly. Uh, so what you so there's been things like you know we've probably heard about like solar sails and yep. stuff like that and different technologies ventress in the clone war the star wars <laughs> well, so clone does, war has so does, a really cool well so does dooku in the movies yeah. he has a solar sail yeah but, but ventress's ship is really cool <laughs> we're such dorks <laughs> um anyway so uh but one of the other ones that's often talked about and actually this comes up in star wars too oh. is um is ion propulsion so uh, the TIE Fighter stands for Twin Ion Engine, and the panels on the TIE Fighter are supposed to be ion engines. It wouldn't work that way because the <laughs> orientation would be all wrong. But, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, mm -hmm. unless the idea is that, like, those are the voltage collectors, like, those are the solar panels, essentially, and that it's, you know, the ion propulsion is the back. But, yeah, Twin Ion Engine. So, huh. yeah. A new um, fact to share with all my friends over the holidays. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Want to talk about Star Wars with me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the way that ion propulsion works is the idea that you create, you have all these charged ions, you create an energy differential between like a positive electrode and a negative electrode that causes these ions to fly in one direction towards it and then basically shoot out of the back of the rocket. Right. Rather than through a traditional like rocket propulsion like nozzle, you're just shooting it through this electrical gradient. And this is where like Newton's laws come into play. Right. So each action has an equal equal and opposite reaction in space, especially there's no friction. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you think about a really, really, really tiny ion. It's got mass and then you're flinging it out the back of this thing. And in space where there's no friction, it's going to propel your rocket forward. Right. If you do this billions upon billions of times all of those little masses and all of their velocities start to really add up. And then again, you're in space where nothing is slowing you down. So every little bit of that over every little bit of increment of time makes your ship go faster and faster and faster. 
And then the advantage of something, a technology like this, is that you still then have maneuverability. Right. Because you can change, you may have direction ability from the rocket, from the thruster essentially, and you might be able to rotate your whole space, you know, your whole object, and then launch in different directions. So the... Uh, the DART is testing this new ion propulsion, this next generation ion propulsion engine called the Next-C, which is a xenon iron propulsion engine, which is, again, it's just using xenon ions, this energy gradient, and it's launching them. And one of the advantages of um, ion propulsion is that it's driven by voltage rather than chemical reaction. And, and voltage is essentially, like, the amount of voltage that you could push through an engine like this to create force is essentially limitless, oh. right? Um, because voltage, especially like current amps, which are like when we talk about electricity on earth, right? Amps are killers and voltage hurts. Um, like huh. current is really what kills you if you get electrocuted. Um, it's how much electricity is passing through your body in a moment that will, that can, you know, fry, like can cause your heart to stop and stuff like that, right? Cause it overwhelms your, your body's electrical systems, your nerves, but voltage is what like will burn you. So that's why electrical fences are high voltage, not high amperage. Because uh, if they were high amperage, people would die. Animals would die. It would be awful. Okay. Um, that's good to know. Right. Uh, I've always wondered about that. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So you think about like Jurassic Park where they're climbing the electrical fence and the electrical fence turns on and Timmy or whatever just gets like launched off the fence because of the electrical force. Like that is really what would happen. I mean, maybe not the like launching, but it would, it would shock you off of it because the voltage is so high but the amps are low. Okay. So as to create this you know, deterrent effect for an animal that doesn't want to touch it, but not to fry them, yes. right? Um, so voltage is very easy to create massive voltage gradients versus like amperage, even like your physical materials can only handle so much current at a given time. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the really interesting things about this DART mission is that they're using this um, ion propulsion, which like it puts out something like, I think at full voltage, it puts out like 235 millinewtons, which is kilograms per meter squared per second, or kilograms times meter squared per second is the, that's what a newton is. So it's milla that, so it's one tenth, one thousandth of a newton. You know, 15 newtons is like, on earth is like hardly anything. Yeah. Like, uh, you can, like 15 newtons is like a couple of pounds of force in terms of gravity. Uh, so you, you're thinking about like a fraction of that, but over you know, many, many days and with no friction counteracting your force, you get a lot of speed to the point where you can travel to six, six kilometers a second. Yeah. That's very cool. The, uh, the whole thing is just sounds so sci-fi. Like, absolutely. And, and using Xenon, like mm -hmm. it's like the most sci-fi sounding. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So cool. it's super fascinating, but that's a sort of this dart mission in a bit of a nutshell. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's time. To our final topic for the day, mm -hmm. this fancy James Webb telescope that Davis has just been dying to talk about. I have. I've been really excited <laughs> to talk about the James Webb. I've been excited about the James Webb for years now. Uh -huh. um, yeah. But before we talk about that, we're just going to talk a little bit about telescopes. Yes. And fill you in on what they are and how they work. Uh, and then we will eventually work our way to the James Webb just to build dramatic tension. Uh, so how telescopes work. Uh, they use curved mirrors to gather and focus light from the night sky. Now there are two, so the big fancy ones use curved mirrors, but older ones or like the standard telescope you might have in your backyard, the like simple little tube you like look in the end and then it's just like the, you point the tube at the star and you're kind of like in the same direction as your... You think of like your pirate spyglass. That's a good it's example. It's like a rudimentary telescope. Yes. What Galileo used. 
when he first developed the telescope. These are much yeah. better examples than me trying to describe this. Uh, yeah, so those types, the, the spyglass type, they initially used curved glass lenses, and a lot of these ones still will use glass lenses. Um, but the reason that mir mirrors are used more nowadays for like big and fancy ones is because mirrors are lighter and it's easier to make them super duper smooth. Mm -hmm. And our mirror technology has gotten better than it used to be. Like yes. making mirrors, you know, 200 years ago was really difficult. Basically, it was just a polished surface. Mm -hmm. But now it's like we can manufacture these mirrors with like basically like um, like to the atom perfections and things yeah. like that. They fancy now. Mm -hmm. uh, so the mirrors or lenses are called the optics of the telescope. And the shape of the optics concentrates the light. So this is the light image that we see when we look in a telescope is the concentrated light by the optics. Uh, and like we're saying, the optics need to be nearly perfect. They have to be the perfect shape in the perfect position because any imperfections will warp this image that we see. And if you're looking at stuff really far away, you kind of want your image to be as perfect as you can. Um, and bigger mirrors or lenses means more light is gathered. So this helps you see things, dim things really, really far away. Uh, you'd need huge optics. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that spyglass kind is called a refracting telescope. And this works like eyeglasses that I'm wearing right now. Uh, so light passes in through the glass and it gets refracted. It gets bent uh, so that it focuses at the right point in your eye. Because if you need glasses, it means that your eyes aren't good at focusing the light where, like, your lens, I guess, isn't good at focusing the light where you need it at the back of your eye. Um, so you have glasses and they help to bend light better so you get the image, the clear image at the right point. Same thing happening in our spyglass refracting type telescope. Um, and you can think the bigger and thicker the lens, the more powerful it is. Just like how if someone has a really, really bad eyesight, they're going to have like thick glasses versus someone who barely needs a prescription is going to have really thin glasses. And then there are reflecting telescopes, and these are the fancier ones. Uh, I saw this when Rask, the... A Royal Astronomy Society of Canada. Yes, when they came to uh, the Science Centre and they brought these big ones and they're like big tubes and instead of looking in the end, you look in like the side. Uh, and the reason that you look in the side is because it has a big curved mirror at the bottom. So light comes in the top of this big cylinder and it hits the big curved mirror, which bounces it up to a smaller, like I think flatter mirror that will balance it out to the eyepiece. NASA has a really good description and some really good images of this on their website. Uh, that makes it like nice and simple. Uh, so yeah, that's your fancier microscope. You're reflecting and you're refracting. One telescopes. Your... Yes. But telescopes and microscopes essentially work on the same principles. You don't it just one makes it bigger and one makes yeah. it smaller. You won't, you won't often use uh, reflection in a t in a microscope because you don't need to concentrate the light as much. You're yeah. not looking at a low light source. You control your light input. Yeah, you're looking at a very high light source. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and typically actually it's just that with telescopes, it's actually just more and more complex series of lenses that allow you to look closer and closer because optical microscopes have like an ultimate limit of how, what kind of resolution they could ever achieve. Right. Mm. But we're not talking microscopes. I was wondering if I was going to slip up on that because mm. I kept doing it in my head. But yeah, so we have, those are telescopes. That's how your basic telescopes work. Yeah. And this web one is going to replace the Hubble. So we're going to talk about the Hubble because I didn't know anything about it before we started mm -hmm. this. I love the Hubble. The Hubble is cool. It is an incredible piece of technology that has given so much to our understanding of science. And like every time you look at the, one of those cool images of like nebulas and stuff like that, those like beautiful images of like the pillars of creation and stuff like that, that's the Hubble. That's the work of the Hubble, you know, reverberating out through time. Yeah, NASA actually, like, states that it revolutionized astronomy. Yeah. 
And uh, part of this is because, so it detects from ultraviolet all the way through the visible spectrum into near infrared. If you want to know more about those, listen to our light episode. Uh, and with where it is up in space and the range it can see with the different types of lights, uh, NASA writes, Far above rain clouds, light pollution, and atmospheric distortions, Hubble has a crystal clear view of the universe. Scientists have used Hubble to observe some of the most distant stars and galaxies yet seen, as well as planets in our solar system. Uh, and so it orbits just above Earth's atmosphere at an altitude of approximately uh, 547 kilometers, approximately, uh, and is going about er, 27,000 kilometers per hour, completing one orbit around the planet every 95 minutes. Zipping around. Yeah, it's a cool piece of tech. Very it's been cool up there a very long time now. Yeah, mm-hmm. and as Davis mentioned, it's being used like, if you've seen a space image, it's very high chances from the Hubble. Yeah. It's made over 1.4 million observations. Uh, and 18,000 scientific papers have been published on its discoveries. And uh, it was launched in 1990. So it's been up there for a while now, Over 31 30 years. years. Yeah. And uh, there have been, the reason it's been, it's still in use today and they can still use it is, uh, it was initially only predicted to have a 15-year lifespan, but it uh, there have been five astronaut servicing missions to replace and upgrade aging parts that can increase capabilities and extend the telescope life. Um which was really cool. It was serviced by NASA's space shuttle program. Uh, unfortunately, the space shuttle program has been retired, so they won't be able to do any more upgrades to it. But that's the reason it still has it's still in function today, and it's expected to still be functioning throughout the 2020s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really cool piece of technology, and it's given a lot to space. Um, our understanding of space, uh, and it it spins using like Davis mentioned with uh, Newton's third law, right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It uh, is made of these like four discs that spin and the way that they spit, like they spin and it puts force on it. It actually makes the whole Hubble spin the other way. NASA has so much information on this. Uh, We won't get bogged down in all of the details, but check it out. It's really cool. Sometimes in sci-fi shows and movies, you'll see they make like a big rotating space station. Mm. Uh, Part of that is for gravity, but it could also help. Yeah, it's the centripetal effect, essentially, like, or the gyroscopic effect, really. Yeah. Like, have you ever done that experiment where you hold, like, a bike wheel, um, usually on an axle, and you spin it, and then you try to alter it, right? It's what makes bikes stay upright when you're cycling. Yeah. Um, and it, you can use that. If you stand on a rotating platform while you're holding a gyroscope like that. Like a that, spinny chair. Yeah, and then you rotate the gyroscope, and there's not, a, and there's enough, like, freedom of movement, like, the friction is low enough, it'll actually spin you on the chair as you move, right? Because... When you pull the gyroscope to the side, um, so now that the spinning is out of plane, it wants to right itself. And then because you're sitting on something that also has freedom of motion in that dimension, it will actually cause the momentum to shift into your rotational movement. Yeah. Rather than like, you know, you'll feel the force against your hands trying to pull the wheel upright, but you're preventing that. But now the force has a different way to escape and it is pulling it through the chair and rotating you. So it works basically off that principle. Yeah. So check it out on YouTube. There are tons of videos mm-hmm. of different, usually like uh, profs, <laughs> university yeah. profs demonstrating this to uh, their classes. Yeah. So yeah. So so that's the Hubble. That is the Hubble. So the web, the James Webb is is slightly different. So the James Webb has been in development for like over 10 years now. Uh, it, had, it has at one point, it did have the dubious title of a um, bit of a boondoggle. Because it was, it's like, it's still like, it's like $10 billion over budget. It's like massively (laughs) over budget. But again, it's this piece of technology that has never been tried before. So it's different from the Hubble in that it's not an optical telescope. uh, In the same way that like, that we think about with using like visible light, right? So you think about your backyard telescope, you're looking through it, you're trying to collect as much light as possible from these distant objects. And you're 
looking through an eyepiece and you're focusing all the lights so that you can look through it. And then the Hubble is going a little bit beyond that to some of the spectrums that the human eye doesn't really see. That there's other types of telescopes that can look at things like radio waves or gamma rays and things like that, that have very different behavior or x-rays that have very different behaviors from visible light cannot be refracted. So the way we collect them is very different. What the James Webb is going to do is it's going to use infrared light, so heat energy from the universe, to peer out into space. Yes. Um, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> no, I was just going to say yes. Uh, yeah. Because, <laughs> again, the Hubble uses from ultraviolet up to near infrared. Mm -hmm. So this will allow us to see just beyond what the Hubble can see, but we won't be able to see, like, the normal things that we humans see because mm -hmm. it's not looking at visible light. Mm -hmm. And so if you've ever seen like heat vision or like a heat vision camera. Or like what a snake sees. Exa exactly. <laughs> is like this? That's essentially infrared. Now, we don't see that. We can't see it. So what, what it is is that an infrared camera like that is a sensor that is collecting electronic information. And then there's a computer program that transforms that electronic information into visible light information that is given like basically a reference scale to tell you how hot or cold an object is. So you're looking at a representation of the infrared light that the sensor is collecting. I mean, that's even like with the Hubble, it's images I believe are black and white, right? And then they're like colored by scientists. Well, but and it it's depends on where in the spectrum it is. And it's an understanding of what, you know, yeah, you're right. So it's like, if you were to take like a photo plate, it would probably be black and white, or even this is a good example, again, with your backyard telescope, or even some pretty powerful observatory telescopes on earth. When you look through the eyepiece, what you're going to see is black and white. It's oh, not no. like those amazing amateur photographer. Like, so when an amateur photographer goes out and captures some things, what, why you can get those amazing colors one you often change your exposures and things yeah, like that but you're using a photo plate which is so much more sensitive to light than the human eye right. right so the human eye rods and cones in the dark we typically only see the rods which are not communicating color so we're going to see things more in black and white uh, but what you can do with a photo plate is you can capture more of those photons and then you can extrapolate from that information. Right. You can say, I can make some reasonable assumptions that I'm losing this amount of photon along the way and the light should actually be like this type of vibrancy. Yeah. And if you know, like they can tell a lot about what stuff is made of in space, right? Like yeah. they can get their... Oh gosh, I don't remember what they're called, but they'll see like, they'll be like, oh, we know that this planet way, way, way over there, this star is made of these things because it's emitting this sort of stuff. It's spectral emissions. Yes. So uh, every element has, um, when you, when you break out the, like the visible light spectrum of it, there'll be bands where there's no yes. light. And it's because of the electronic configurations of the atoms and each element, because each element has a different electronic configuration. Yes will create different basically black spots in the spectrum in the spectral emission and that allows us to like look at the light that passes through a planet's atmosphere and say this is the composition of that that planet's right. atmosphere that's billions of miles away yes yeah. so there's i guess a bit of an aside but just to say when you see those images they're not falsely colored they're just like post taken picture colored not like when you see like a picture of a cell in like yeah. your high school textbook that is falsely colored. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a really good point. Or you, the way I would liken it is like, it's essentially like the Instagram filter, right? <laughs> it, essentially what you were doing is you were taking the, the data, the electronic information that you're capturing, especially when you're capturing it on a photo plate um, or in some sort of like data, you know, in some sort of data capture and you are extrapolating out to what it should look like. And then you're applying like some filters and things like that to, to gussy the image up a little bit. Make it all fancy. Exactly. Get them likes. Exactly. 
Um, and this is again how like when you're imaging gamma rays or x-rays or radio waves from space, radio waves not so much, but like even if you did, if you did a visualization of those signals, you are just again like an infrared camera. You're just saying, okay, you know, from purple to blue and this is the color gradient and this is what all those color gradients mean. If, if, if you see this signal of gamma ray here with this intensity uh, and this frequency, give it this color. And so you can create these visual representations of things that the human eye can't see. And can we not refract those ones because they're just too long? You need like a, a lens a kilometer deep. It's because they don't interact with matter the same oh, way right. that visible light does. So okay. an x-ray, right? The big principle of an x-ray, like we talked about in the light podcast, is that an x-ray sees through objects. That's, yeah. what's, that's why we can use it to image bones. And there's certain things it won't go through, right? With like different, and Or in, <laughs> in different densities and things like that will obstruct the movement of them in different ways or cause scattering. That allows us to see through stuff. So by that exact same principle, you can't use a traditional glass lens to refract, refract, refract <laughs> x-rays because it's not interacting with the, with that object. It's not right. slowing the light down and causing it to bend. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. So just none of our current materials can do stuff like that. So the way that the James, so the James Webb is using infrared light. And the advantage of this is that it allows us to look at some of the earliest galaxies and stars from like the beginning of the universe that are typically giving off very low sensitivity infrared light, right? These are very dim objects because they're some of the oldest objects in the universe. So the sensitivity of the web is like incredibly, incredibly fine. It's a bunch of like mumbo jumbo numbers. So it doesn't really matter to the, like to the average, it doesn't matter to me because like, I don't, I'm not the astrophysicist who's designing it, yeah, no. um, but it's a, extremely sensitive. The other advantage is like, you know, firefighters will use infrared light uh, to see through smoke, right. right? Because smoke won't have as much of a thermal signature as other things in the room. So if there's bodies or people in the room still trapped in a burning building, you can see through the smoke with infrared. And, and that is a big advantage that the web has is that it can look through these nebula clouds and see what's going on inside of them. Right. So we can actually watch the formation of stars and planetary disks and solar systems inside other nebulas that we wouldn't have necessarily been able to see with the Hubble because we can only see the light that's bouncing off or being emitted from sources or bouncing off the clouds of dust that form the nebula. It's like the, the weather radar satellites that use microwaves because they can see through the clouds. Exactly, exactly like that. So it's just, we're using all these different, all these different understandings of how light behaves and the different things that different forms of light can do to create a larger and larger spectrum of things that we can capture to create a more complete picture of the entire universe. So this is going to be a huge, this is going to create some massive changes into how we understand the early universe, which is incredibly important to astrophysicists and understanding like how our universe works. Yeah, answering those like really basic why questions. Mm -hmm. So the web is the largest and most powerful space telescope ever designed. There are teles visual uh, optical telescopes on Earth or radio telescopes on Earth that are more powerful, but this is the most powerful object in terms of imaging that we've ever put into space. And one of the really interesting things that I learned in the web was I had operated under this assumption that the web was literally just going to like go up into near earth orbit, kind of bump the Hubble out of position and just take <laughs> over where the Hubble was, right? Like that was kind of my natural assumption. But it turns out that the web's operating distance is is about a million and a half kilometers or sorry, 1.5 million kilometers from the earth. It's at this special point called Lagrange 2. 
So uh, the Lagrange points, there's five Lagrange points in the solar system, and it's a solution to an old physics or oh, a mathematical problem called the three-body problem. You may have heard there's like a very famous science, Chinese science fiction novel um, by Cixin Liu called The Three-Body Problem, which is like a science fiction horror story. It's supposed to be really good. I've been meaning to read it for a while. It anyway. sounds really cool, but I've yeah. never heard of it. The Three-Body Problem is this mathematical problem to de determine if there is a stable configuration in which three bodies, three celestial bodies, so you think planet, moon, satellite, can orbit each other in a way that, and they stay in the same position relative to one another. So there are five Lagrange points in the solar system be between like the Earth, the Earth, the moon, and then a proposed third object. And the reason that, there, so Lagrange 1 is in between the Earth's orbit and the Sun. So it's not particularly useful for something like the James Webb, which needs to use, which is trying to read heat energy. Because if you're closer to the Sun, you're getting more interference. Yeah, it's just not going to work. Exactly. So, I've read you can't even like point the Hubble at, like the Hubble with the light. Uh, you can't point it at Earth because it'll destroy all the instruments because mm. Earth is too bright. Exactly. So, so you, so they're using Lagrange 2, which is 1.5 million kilometers away mm. from the Earth out into space. And then it allows the web to, as it orbits the sun and as the earth orbits the sun and everything moves along with it, that, so you have the earth, the sun, and the web. Those are the three bodies. And it allows them to stay in the same plane as one another oh. so that the earth is always between, so that the, the earth and the sun are always in the same trajectory away from the James Webb. Because the James Webb, again, it, it had even the heat signature from the earth would create so much interference because of the way that the light is bouncing off the earth and the moon. So it has this massive tennis court sized heat shield, essentially like a hat that's going to sit on <laughs> one side or a sun umbrella on or a parasol on one side of the James Webb to shield it from the infrared radiation from the sun, the heat energy from the sun. And in order for this to work, it has to be at a Lagrange point so that there is no, so that at any given point, the earth is in the way, like the earth it is both, both blocking the earth signal and the sun signal. Yeah. The other advantage of using a Lagrange point is that it means it is always in plane in similar position to the earth as they're all orbiting. Right. And that means it's easier to send signals back and forth. Right. It's like reducing the variables. Exactly, exactly. And this is, so these Lagrange points, these are where this con this configuration is stable. So it will stay, it will always stay with this relationship. So sometimes you think about like the, the moon is tidally locked to the earth, right? So the moon is rotating, but it's also revolving around the earth. But we only ever see the, the light side of the moon. The dark side of the moon, we never see from our position on earth. And this is because the earth, the, the moon's rotation, the face of the moon is essentially locked to the earth because of the gravitational pull between the objects. And so as the earth rotates and the moon revolves around it, the moon, as the moon does a full circle, it also does a full revolution on its axis. But from our perspective, it always looks like the same side of the moon is facing us. But from the moon's three-dimensional position, it does do a full 360 rotation. It's a very difficult thing yeah, to I've conceptualize. Never, I've never grasped this properly. It, it's super <laughs> It's super complex to grasp. Yeah. And this is exactly what's happening at this like Lagrange point. Okay. It's the same thing, essentially. Okay. And part of what makes the Lagrange point stable is that the, the, um, the gravitational forces between all three bodies 
also don't cause them to come out of this orientation from each other. So that's why this mathematical problem was so complicated. It was solved in the 18th century by a man by the name of Joseph Louis Lagrange. That's why they have this name. Like, ah, you figured it out. Exactly. We salute you. Mm -hmm. Because it was ultimately, it's a mathematical problem. Yeah. Right? Like a lot of space things are. Exactly. So... Anyway, it was that was really interesting to me because like that is what is going to allow the web to take images that the Hubble couldn't. One, it's infrared technology, but then also the way that it's positioned relative to everything else in space. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a I guess the one or a couple other facts. Like, so it's so yeah. big, right? Like as James mm-hmm. was mentioning. Yes. Uh, it requires an aperture that's larger than the biggest like rocket casing that we have. Uh, so it's going to need the panels of this giant mirror. Like we said, telescope with a mirror. And it's a gold-plated mirror because Ooh. gold is really good at reflecting heat energy. But gold is so soft. But gold, because of gold's electronic configuration and the way that you can make a solid gold crystal as a surface, it is really good at deflecting heat energy. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So that'll be good. Um, but the, so the big gold plated mirrors, uh, if you've broken into smaller segments to be deployed and then assembled in space, which is something you do see in sci-fi sometimes if they're talking about making like a really big ship, yeah, like a really big spaceship, they just do it in space because it's the only place big enough. And then you also don't have to get this gigantic thing out of Earth's, uh, uh, it, it's like hole. if you've ever seen a ship in dry dock like a boat in dry dock mm-hmm. where they have to do work on the hull and stuff like that they have to put it in a space that doesn't have any where they can drain the water away mm-hmm. and then the boat is like massive so essentially like if we were to build like enterprise style space like um enterprise style um rocket ships the you know massive massive like city-sized spacecraft we would do it in space where like the where the gravitational forces wouldn't be this big limiting factor yeah <laughs> and then i don't know if this has to be with the has to do with the gold but the uh the optical system all this mirrors and things mm-hmm. uh has to be cooled to uh 40 to 50 degrees kelvin which i did the conversions for you there mm-hmm. uh negative 233 to negative 222 degrees celsius so real cold which is good for when it's in space because space is really cold, mm-hmm. but uh, I guess to to get it up there and everything, you'd have to keep it under pretty uh, intense cold conditions. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, to allow it to have the necessary sensitivity to right. achieve its mission, right? So that it can see, detect these tiny, tiny changes in infrared radiation, these tiny changes in heat signature millions and millions and millions and millions of miles away. Mm-hmm. Cool. It is. It's a really neat piece of technology. Um, it was supposed to launch earlier this month, but uh, interestingly, there was like a because I I started looking into this, so I was like trying to figure out when the launch date was, yeah. so that I could kind of time when we were going to talk about it. And it was supposed to launch at a launch window, kind of the very start of December, and then there was like a press release. So currently, it's in French Guinea, uh, which is one of the French colonial islands near Papua New Guinea. And that's where they're preparing it for its final launch. And there was a press release from like the ESA facility that's there, the European Space Agency facility that's there. And it's like, obviously, this is a big joint project between all the major space agencies. And uh, where they were like, there has, there was a, um, a sudden and unpredicted decoupling that caused reverberations throughout the unit. And it's mm-hmm. like fancy engineer speak for they dropped it. <laughs> or like a clamp failed and it dropped. Right. <laughs> Vibrations throughout the unit is, yeah, like, uh, they, they, dropped, the they dropped it. <laughs> so, you know, 
And and then of course, like you think about it, right? You're a scientist, an engineer on this thing. You've probably been working on it your entire career, potentially, or a good chunk of your career. And you are now in like the final days. The and basically, like it's going to take 29 days for the web to launch, unfold, unfurl itself, operationalize itself, and reach the Lagrange point too. And so this is like, you know. You think about some of those videos we watched of like when Perseverance landed and these guys, again, who'd worked 20, 30 years on these rovers, then there's this moment of five or six minutes where you just have no idea if it's worked or not. And you're holding your breath for that first little ping to come from Mars. Imagine that now stretched over like 29 days where all of these little elements, the solar, the, the solar shield has to unfurl. It's the size of a tennis court. There are something like over 60 panels in the mirror, all these hexagonal mirror pieces that then have to unfurl, unfold themselves and orient themselves the right way. Then you have to get to this point in space. You have to establish your orbit and then you can start operating. (laughs) It's going to be a very, and again, this is like a 10, well, like I, I don't even can't even remember how much was this, this project has cost to this point. And every millions time, of dollars. And every time you miss a launch window, you have to wait, mm-hmm. right? Because you have to like launch windows are very specific. Because if when you shoot stuff out into space, it could very easily hit other things in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we talk about that a lot. In, or be affected by the other time. gravities that it's yes. of the bodies that it's passing and things like that, right? Yeah. Um, or you want to launch at a point where now Lagrange point is a set distance, but like when we talk about a lot about this in the Mars mission stuff, where you know, when we go to Mars, the launch window is the apogee of Mars and Earth's um, re- uh, revolutions around the sun, uh, orbits around the sun, where they are closest to each other right. along those ellipses. And it only happens like once every six months. Yeah. So if you miss this opportunity, <laughs> <You're> like, <"Well." laughs> you got to wait till the next opportunity comes around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they don't drop it again. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I do believe it's like in, I, I believe it is in the launch vehicle. Um, the rocket that's taking it up. It's not a Falcon 9. It's a different rocket, I think, that they're using to deploy it, right? Because, again, cause it's going to push it out a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just trying to go to near-Earth orbit. It is a super heavy, though. Um, so, again, this, like, very sophisticated launch vehicle that can launch a massive payload. Yeah, it's pretty big. Uh, so I think it is on the unit now. And cool. the, the, the proposed final date for launch is December 22nd. So the launch window, as of like a week ago, they were saying the week of the 18th, and they have now sort of said the 22nd is the day we're going to try to launch the web. Very cool. It is very neat. Mark your calendars. Well, and then another month, so hopefully like, you know, two months into the new year, we should maybe start to see some of the images from this thing, potentially. Fingers crossed that everything goes right, which is my hope, obviously. Very cool. And in the interim, you can always go to NASA's website and check out all the Hubble telescope images, and they've made a lot of, I think they made them all open source and... Yeah, most of them are. I think you can even book time in the Hubble now, Um, especially because, like, after the Hubble kind of achieved its original scientific mission, um, you basically, because even, like, big observatories, um, you can rent, as if you're, especially if you're an astrophysicist, you can, or um, an astronomer, you can rent time in a uh, telescope to, like, orient it to a particular thing you're trying to observe. That makes sense. And hey, cooperation! Exactly. Yay! So yeah, uh, so I think that's kind of everything we wanted to talk about today. Yeah. Um, yeah, lots of cool space stuff going on. Some of it scary, some of it, you know, hopeful. I wanted to end on a hopeful note. Yes. That's why we did the James Webb last. Uh, but yeah, so those are some of the major developments from past a while. Um, we'll let you know when pictures do come out. Yeah. yeah. Whenever that happens. Yeah. Um, not sure what we're going to cover next. Uh, uh, the New Year's is co- New Year is coming up. I was true. thinking, uh, I think the psychology of 
uh, resolutions could be a thing. Oh, that could be a good one. Potentially. I was, I was thinking even um, there's been a lot of discussion around, there's been a renewed discussion around right to repair. And Apple oh. has sort of just announced like they've kind of finally gotten on board with like full right to repair. So now okay. like you can fully get your iPhone repaired and stuff like that, like rather than having to get it replaced and stuff like that. So I thought that might be something interesting to look yeah. at, but we'll see. Um, we'll yeah. see if anything new kind of comes up in the new year uh, or as we get closer to the new year. Yes. And uh, we'll go from there. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, as always, if you have any topics that you would like to listen to us cover, let us know, and we will we'll jump right on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. even if it's not super topical, if you yeah. if you want to hear it, that's topical enough for us. Exactly. <laughs> or if there's a science concept that you want to have explained. Yeah. Um, I did have someone ask me about like MRI, so right. we could do something about medical imaging as well. Um, it could I be also think we since we did the cannabis one, we should do an alcohol one. Oh, potentially that's a good you idea know? too. I mean, a lot of drinking around the holidays. That so that too, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people will do. Maybe it'll be good one for January. A lot yeah. of people do dry January. That's true. Mm-hmm. Right, because uh, again, after the holidays, you so much drinking that people typically take a break. So dry Feb is also a thing, yep. and sober October. <laughs> dry, <laughs> dry Feb is a thing because it's the shortest. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so we'll think of something. Lots um, of options. But let us know if there's something you want to hear covered yeah, and we'll get right on it. Reach out to us on Twitter at Temporary Expert, just one expert, um, or find a Third Sock from the Sun on Instagram. I always post about our new episodes when they are released. Uh, and if you are listening to us on any of the things you listen to us on, like Spotify or uh, Apple the Apple Store or <laughs> Apple Podcasts. Apple I don't know Podcasts, what they call thank it. You. Yeah. yeah, it changed recently. Yeah. Uh, or Google, whatever. Uh, if you're listening, leave us a review. Leave us some stars. If you're enjoying it, it helps us hack the algorithm and find new audiences so we can keep bringing you cool science stuff and movie references. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for, uh, but that's, that's it. for So for all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And we have been your Temporary, temporary Experts. experts. Thanks for listening. Oh,